Amen. All right, John 4, 27 uh, to 45, God's Word says this. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that is uh, that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. I'll tell you guys what, I love to talk about the mission of God's people. And that's what we have here this morning. Uh, The mission of Jesus is evident in this passage uh, a few months back, uh, Nate, our discipleship director, he was up here earlier doing announcements. We went away for a day and planned out the book of John. We read through John on our own and kind of compared notes and broke down all the passages together. And originally, we had lumped this whole section together with last week's section. But if you've been hanging around this church long enough, you know I like to preach long. And so I got to last week's passage and said, there's just no way I can cover all this material. And since the latter half of this is talking about our role, in witnessing to others, uh, this has to be its own sermon. So here we are this morning. We've broken this passage in half. The context of this, if you recall, if you were here last week, is the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus engaging with this uh, woman who has somewhat of a a shady and shameful past and sharing with her uh, the good news of the gospel. And so we look to uh, the mission of God. Mission is imperative to our life and growth as Christians. If we identify as a follower of Jesus, it is uh, one of the most important aspects of our, our walk with Christ. That, that this has taken place, that we're not mere converts just gathering in a sense to kind of check a box and then move on, but rather that we are disciples, meaning that we are transformed by the power of Jesus. And as disciples, we are commanded to do this, to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus's command uh, in Matthew 28. Hopefully you're familiar with that command. He told his disciples, who would become the apostles, the early fathers and planners of the Christian church, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he said this, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, all that Jesus commanded in his word. This statement we know as this, as the Great Commission. Can you guys say that with me? Good, the Great Commission. And it's the heart of our organizational mission statement, okay? Our mission statement as a church is this. It's to be disciples that make disciples. To be disciples that make disciples. As I prepared this message, I thought to myself, it's, you know, it's just the mission of God, disciple-making, is just such a no-brainer to the average church-going person. We all know this stuff, I thought. Everyone knows the Great Commission and is aware of that passage, Full stop, God had something in his providence that he showed to me. As I thought, everyone knows the Great Commission is aware of that passage. I came across this this last week. I was kind of perusing through the social media, and I follow a church page called Church Leaders, and it's basically a blog page that's aimed at church leadership and pastors and things like that. So uh, they wrote, they put out a blog this past week, wrestling with a Barna survey. Barna is an organization that'll survey people on different things. So I think they surveyed about a thousand of what they would define as church-going people. So people that attended church on a consistent basis. This was a survey back in 2018. So not too long ago, about, you know, a little over four years ago. Found this, hear this, this is pretty staggering. 51% of church-going people, so people that went to church consistently, go to church consistently, are unaware of what the Great Commission is. They, they, and they claim that they've never even heard it in church before. They're unaware of that. So as I thought, well, this passage on the mission of God is just kind of a no-brainer, and then God in his providence showed me this article uh, on social media, and I realized, well, we got to talk about the mission of God, which excites me. I love the mission of God. I love the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost. There's obviously more details in the article, but this is just kind of a, you know, Cliff's Notes version is that number, that statistic jumped out at me, that 51, over, okay, the majority of people don't know the Great Commission. They don't know where it came from. They claim that they really haven't heard it in church. That's alarming. It's my passion and drive to be a disciple maker who makes who creates disciple makers that should be our drive of as followers of jesus it's our purpose and mission in life it's the reason why if i get to the heart of pastoring it's the reason why i uh, am called i believe to shepherd a church that we would raise up disciple makers we are church god would never let this happen but we we could be one generation away from losing the faith if we don't raise up disciple makers It's the importance of the mission of God. We see it right now in Europe. You know, we we contribute to an organization called 20 Schemes that plants churches in Scotland. Scotland was once a great light for the gospel. Now 2% of people identify there as Christians. We're one generation away from being like that. It should be the goal that, that each and every Christian in the room would have a passion to make disciples for Jesus and that this passion, again, this morning, based on what we see this woman do, this Samaritan woman do, and Jesus' instruction to his disciples would again fall afresh on us this morning, that we would become passionate disciple makers here at North Bullet Christian Church. This brings us to our main idea this morning. 
I'm fired up this morning. There's a fly that's been pestering me. And so if you see me go Kung Fu Panda up here, I'm not going insane. I'm just trying to kill that fly. I got a piece of him in the last service. I felt him hit my hand, but he came back from the dead and he's flying around up here. Our main idea is this. We, we must align our role with his mission. We must align our role, our life with his mission. Okay. It's not about you. It's about the mission of Jesus. We pick up the story. So, so Jesus is conversing with the Samaritan woman at the well, which is scandalous in and of itself. You can go back and listen to the sermon last week. Uh, the disciples have been sent out on assignment. Jesus is tired, weary. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He said, hey, go get me some food. So they go to get food from a nearby town. They discover when they come back that Jesus is talking to this woman. They call to Jesus to come and eat. And Jesus responds in this way. He says this in verse 34. And I really believe this is just kind of the, the turning point of this whole passage. He says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What a powerful statement. Jesus, okay, food is something that we eat for sustenance, to be sustained, to give us energy. Jesus is so consumed by his heavenly role, his God-given role, that he calls it his food. Right? Food sustains us, gives us energy, nutrients, and life. Who here is a food lover? I am. I love to eat good food. Give me good food. Food is also, what's beautiful about food is that it sustains us, but it's, if it's made well, it's enjoyable. It's a basic necessity of life, and it's a necessity that's, that's enjoyable. Flavor and texture bursting forth. Jesus is saying that his mission is the sustenance of his life. It's what keeps him going. It's what revitalizes him. And it's like flavor on the palate of his mouth. He can taste it. And we must, as followers of Jesus, must strive uh, towards this viewpoint. We too are on mission with him. And his mission to go and make disciples should revitalize and sustain each and every one of us every time we see someone come to the loving arms of Christ. Jesus defines the will of the Father in John 6.40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have what? Eternal life, life in abundance, life that is truly life. And He says this, I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus reminds us here, I think, in, in John 6.40, looking back, we keep going back to the discussion that He had. We preached on this a few weeks ago with Nicodemus. He reminds us of this discussion again, that everyone who looks to the Son will have eternal life. That idea of looking to the Son, Jesus Christ, is, is the idea that he's exalted, that he's lifted up. In other words, it's kind of kingly language, that he is our king, that he is our head, that he is over us, that he is sovereign over us, that he's ruling and reigning over our lives. And when he is in his rightful place in authority over our lives, we have life that is truly life, abundant life in Christ. And so we'll now witness the mission of God play here in, in this passage. Okay, upon meeting uh, the Messiah, Jesus, the Samaritan woman is so transformed, so like taken aback by that this Jewish guy would come and talk to her 
that she immediately goes back to her town and starts telling other people about Jesus. Come see this man that I've met. Come and look. And it's our first point is to go and tell. Go and tell. Let me remind you again of of her situation. This is a woman who's had a number of, of marriage partners. She's at the water well at noon, likely because she's isolated. She doesn't really want to hear the accusations from the town people. She's just a, a loner at the well by herself. Shame dominates her life. She felt unworthy even to be around the townspeople. And this is the backdrop of her going and telling the townsfolk now about this man that she has met. That's a remarkable transformation, right? That she would be at the well by herself in all likelihood because she doesn't want to hear all the accusations and the shame from the people. And now because she has experienced and encountered Jesus, she's running back to tell these very people that she's avoiding. That's what the gospel does to us. That's what an experience with Jesus does to our lives. Let's look at verses 27 to 29. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, so they didn't say anything to him. It seems like they were just thinking these things. What do you think? What do you seek? Or what do you, why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town, said to the people, here's, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the Savior of the world? A few things here. I don't want to miss, like, like the simple teaching is this. Go and tell, right? Go and tell others about Jesus. That's the simple teaching. But there's some other neat things that are going on in this passage, some other things that I'd like you to notice. One is, is the disciples and their interaction here. The disciples, even though they question Jesus, so there's kind of, a, I believe, again, a mental questioning. So this here, I want to pause. What's neat about this section is that it really shows us that this is an eyewitness account because how would a second-hand person or a third-hand person know what the disciples were thinking? So probably John himself is thinking, why is he talking to this lady at the well in the middle of the daylight and everybody can see? But what is their response? Do they interrupt the work of Christ? Do they get in the way of what he's doing? No. No, it says no one said anything. They just watched what Jesus was doing. They didn't didn't ask. They stood back and and they said, okay, I'm going to see what Jesus is going to do here. In other words, okay, simply put, they didn't get in the way of the work of Christ. They didn't get in his way. They weren't an extra stumbling block to what Jesus was trying to accomplish with this woman. Let us not, in in our own, jumping to our own conclusions, get in the way of the work of Christ. We say this often here. The only stumbling block that we put out is a stumbling block of the gospel. It's all about Jesus and what he has accomplished don't be a hindrance to the mission of God. Something else I want you to see here is that she, she left her water jar and went away into the town. Now, there isn't any detail as to why, and so we only can use a little bit of creative license here, and so there's a few opinions that, that float around. Again, this is also, I would say, so we had the thoughts of the disciples thinking, why is he talking to this woman but not voice? So that's evidence of a, a firsthand account, a firsthand witness I think also this detail is evidence of a firsthand witness because why would 
someone, a second or third hand person put this detail of the water jar being left behind there. It has to be first hand. So our options are this. I believe there's, there's a few here that she leaves the water jar in haste, like in a hurry because of this, because she's eager. She's met this man that she says has told her everything she's ever done. She is eager to get back and tell people about Jesus. Do we have that kind of eagerness in our life? Okay, another thing, another conclusion that we could come to would be that Jesus was weary, he was tired, he needed what? He asked her for water, didn't he? That she, probably not being a a woman of much, has left all that she has behind to, to give. She's given to Jesus now her possession to drink as she runs back to tell the good news to the townspeople. She gave what she had to Jesus. I think there's a couple applications we can draw out of that. The third thing now I want you to notice. Do you see here the language that this woman uses, her view of herself? Emotionally, mentally, physically, she's defined. This woman has defined her whole life in view of her shortcomings. How do we know that? Because she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now, Jesus could have told her every single thing that she's ever done in her life. Or he mentions, he challenges her on her history with multiple marriage after marriage after marriage after marriage, and then now being with a man that's not her husband, speaking to you know sexual sin, sexual immorality, and Jesus has, has confronted her on that, on that issue in love. And she has, in her mind, defined her whole life. I believe what's going on here. She's defined her whole life as that sin. These sinful choices. It dominates that she would go back and say, hey, this is the guy that told me everything I ever did because every, my, my whole life is wrapped up in these poor decisions that I've made. And I think some of us here in the room can relate to the position of this woman. Again, I don't, I don't think Jesus told her everything she ever did. She's, she's exaggerating in a minute. But in, but in her mind, she's defined, again, her whole life in light of her sinful decisions, her shortcomings, her shame. Hear this. In Jesus, this is the mission of God. She's found forgiveness of sins. She's found, in light of last week's passage, she's found true worship she now worships God, he said, Jesus said, in spirit and truth and the excitement of this prospect on her life because she's only viewed her life in sin and shame. That's the summary of her life. The excitement of this prospect on her life has given her now a deep purpose and drive to go and tell others. I'll tell you this, I know in, in my walk with Jesus and engaging with people from all sorts of different pathways as, as Christ has found them, there's little that compares to someone who truly understands these things. The depth of their sin in the face of a holy God who understands the depth and width of the forgiveness of Jesus that he gives us for our sins And then they want to do this. When they understand this, they want to tell the whole world about him. Come meet this. Come meet Jesus. 
And this is why family new disciples are imperative to the advancement of God's kingdom. Because there's a joy and an excitement that's just absolutely infectious within the body of Christ when someone who has been newly won to Jesus comes in and they're excited about Jesus and they want to tell the whole world about them. And that's why we have to be disciple makers over and over. We don't get to retire from that position. There's a, lie, there's a lie in our culture that at some point you just get to retire and you can walk around the beach and do nothing. I like the beach, okay? But, but you got to come back at some point and you have to continue in the role, the mission that Christ has given us, which is to be disciples that make disciples, to see the excitement of a, of a woman like this who has defined her life in sin, but is now so excited at the experience that she's had with Jesus that she's telling everybody that she knows. The beauty of it, too, is that, is that this woman who's defined her whole life, her human worth upon her sinful mistakes... I want you to hear this. For, for those of us who define your life by one mistake or maybe a lifetime of mistakes or sin that keeps creeping back into your life over and over again, Jesus has done this for you. Jesus has won victory for you at the foot of the cross. Paul tells us this in Colossians. I love this section in Colossians 2, 13 to 14. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hear this, God made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, all that sin and shame that you carry with you is taken up at the cross. Why? Because he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. It says, with its legal demands, he says, as this he set aside, this is a beautiful picture, nailing it to the cross. Your sin is nailed to the cross. Your shame is nailed to the cross. Taken up by him. And so now we see the response of, of the Samaritan townspeople in our second point. They, they come to see. So she goes and tells. Now they want to come and see this Jesus for themselves. And this passage, I want to pause here for a second. It contains a, a sandwich scene. So we begin with the Samaritan woman. Then Jesus engages with the disciples. Uh, he illustrates the mission of God as a, as a harvest. And then the Samaritans kind of come back into the picture. So these things are happening at the same time. So we're going to skip. We're going to stick with the Samaritans. And at the end, we'll bring you back to the disciples and look at that teaching. So the, the disciples return, the woman departs to tell the others, and again, we're left with a concurrent story, and we pick that up. We're going to look at verse 30, then skip to 39 to 42. It says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. So this is the Samaritans now, are making their way back to Jesus after they've heard the testimony of this woman. Jesus, meanwhile, is having a conversation with the disciples. And then if we skip to the end, it says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, this is beautiful, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We have experienced Jesus for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed, this is awesome, the Savior of the world. What, and this is a remarkable scene. Because of the woman's testimony, 
Okay, her witness. This is, John's using some similar language. If, if we recall back to John uh, chapter 3, verse 33, this isn't in your notes. John's used this type of language before, testimony. He said this in, in chapter 3, verse 33. He said, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal. We define that when we preach through that passage like our signature. And this time, not everybody knew how to write, and so they would have a seal that they would stamp their name on, confirming their testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, hear this, that God is true. That God is true. These Samaritans, a little bit more history for you. These Samaritans with, with really like their partial, they had a partial understanding of the scriptures of the time. The scriptures of the time would be what we would know as the Old Testament. So the, the Pharisees, the Jewish uh, religious leaders held to the whole Old Testament as we have it with uh, Moses' writings, history, prophets, uh, poetry, all those different things. But the Samaritans held similarly to another religious uh, Jewish group, the Sadducees, only to what we call the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. That was the only view that they had in Scripture. And so with their partial understanding of Scripture, they still expected that the Christ was coming, the Messiah was coming. And they're drawn to Jesus. Why? Because this woman was faithful to give her testimony to witness to this man that told her everything she ever did. The setting of this woman's testimony, her seal or signature that Jesus is the Messiah and that she has experienced his power. His power here is made known in the knowledge that she has of her life. But the amazing thing is they don't just rest on her testimony alone. Their salvation does not rest upon the testimony of the woman alone. They must come to the word of God themselves. They must encounter Jesus themselves. They must experience the Savior of the world themselves. Jesus is the word. John's uh, established that in the early part of his gospel. He is the very word of God. And in the story, they not only hear the testimony, the witness of this woman, that then stirs up within them a curiosity to come and hear from the Word of God. They come and experience Jesus for themselves. They had to, here's a lesson here, they had to personally respond to the message of Christ himself, not just the testimony of the woman. And so we can draw now some application out of this. We can... We can, in a sense, pull some pressure off of us and look to Christ as the one who saves. Understand this, your testimony, your story cannot save anyone. It is the means that God uses to stir up within people that they need to come and experience this Jesus for themselves because they see what's occurring in you. This woman here who has avoided all of this town, who's gone out by herself and been isolated, who's been defined by a life of sin, is now running back to the people that she has avoided to tell them about Jesus. And because of her excitement, they say, I want to come and see that for myself. I want to experience that for myself. God uses us. Our mission is this, that we would be used as instruments and tools of God to draw a people unto himself. 
Jesus' conversation with this woman radically shifted her life. She told others they were drawn to Jesus. Once they heard and experienced Jesus, they too set their seal, their signature, that he is indeed the Savior of the world, confirming that God is true. The beauty of this scene is that they didn't, they didn't want just a little bit of Jesus. They begged him to stay. Jesus, stay with us a little bit longer. Talk to us more. So he did. Stayed for a few more days. He planted him and the disciples, I believe, planted enough of the seed with these people. And then he had to move on because he had to carry out the rest of his mission. These people who who are set up in Scripture, these marginalized and unclean people in the eyes of the Jews are declaring here that Jesus is not only Messiah, but they say he is indeed the Savior of the world. We see the saving power goes beyond our man-made lines that we have created. The saving power of Jesus bursts beyond our ethnicity and our race and our gender and our social status, and it's saving a people unto himself for the glory of God. The saving power of the gospel invades hearts and minds. Meanwhile, now, we have something else going on. So this scene's going on. Meanwhile, now, we kinda, we're going to go back and look at the parallel scene with the disciples. It brings us to our third point. We see partnership and mission. Partnership and mission. Verse 31 to 38. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, hear this, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white or ripe for harvest. The idea here is that I believe the Samaritans are now making their way back and Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, look up, the harvest is coming. It's moving towards you. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. My family has lived in Kentucky for a little over three years. Uh, Where I'm from, you can't just plant seeds and expect them to grow. The ground is hard and sandy. It's difficult to maintain a garden because of the scorching heat and the lack of water. I think it rained on average maybe three to five inches the whole year there. We can get that in the afternoon here in Kentucky. Since moving here, my wife enjoys planting a small garden in our yard to enjoy fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, The first year we moved out here, she bought a raspberry bush and has propagated that bush and filled in, I think, every area of my backyard. It's killing my grass, but that's another discussion. I didn't participate at all with planting this bush. But I do participate in a daily walk around my property, and I pick the fruit off, and I enjoy those little sweet, tart morsels of flavor exploding in my mouth. 
The labor of another has allowed me to enjoy the fruit. The labor of my wife, I get to now enjoy the fruit of that labor. I get to go reap the harvest. This is the picture that Jesus gives us in this passage. The labor of others has now led to a time of harvesting by his disciples, and it continues with us. We're the product of faithful men and women who have proclaimed the gospels and made disciples of us. And we are to carry out that mission in our life over and over and over again. I mean, as churches, this is going to be my rant for this morning. I'm getting tired, so I'm going to get ranty for a second. As church, there's so many of us churches, and, I, and I'm, I do this myself. It's like, we want to cast this vivid vision and get people on board. Here's the mission. Be disciples that make disciples. Here's the vision, the Great Commission. And it's just a cycle. We, we make disciples over and over and over again until what? Until Jesus comes back. That's God's vision for the local church. It's simple. And so the labor of others has now led to a time of harvest, harvesting. It's, it's the labor of men and women like Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Rahab, who had the spies in Jericho, King David, prophets like Elijah. But most importantly, it's the labor and work of Jesus Christ. He has led the fields to be ripe and ready to be picked. Moreover, in, in this passage, he speaks now of a time when sowing and reaping go hand in hand. It's like there's no delay in the language. Like it's happening right now. You're planting and the fruit's coming up. Pick it. The first year we planted the raspberry bush, it, we gained very few raspberries, right? Like the, the fruit just didn't produce that much. But the next year we split the plant the harvest grew. Now the third year, it's, it's grown again. And yet, so that took over three years. But Jesus here speaks of sowing and reaping occurring simultaneously at the same time. It's miraculous. For those of you who grow plants, you know that they don't just grow and bear fruit. It takes time. But Jesus talks about it happening at the same time. It's exponential. That's what we think about with the mission of God. It's an exponential thing. This one woman that Jesus has engaged with now has gone and won a whole town for Jesus. And then they're going to go out and win more people for Christ and so on and so forth. The mission of God is exponential. The Samaritans picture this perfectly, the exponential effects of the mission of God. And Jesus here, now, if we get the picture, he's conversing with his disciples. I, I always picture it kind of as dusty and sandy in this area. And these people are rushing back to him. They can probably hear their feet walking on the ground, the dust clouds starting to build. The murmurs of the people is coming towards him. And Jesus is like, hey, the, the harvest is white. It's right there. It's coming for you. And it's just like, this, is, this passage is so amazing. It's, it's just like Jesus to utilize Samaritan belief to collapse and destroy the social stigmas of the day. To show that he is reconciling a diverse people unto himself under his headship. It's not confined now to one people, but the veil has been torn and the gospel is going out to all nations. So the dust cloud is building they want to meet Jesus. Jesus is teaching his disciples. I feel a sense of urgency in his words here. Are you ready? He's asking. These are questions we can ask ourselves. Are you ready? Are you ready for my mission? Are you ready to do the will of the Father? 
Moreover, this this section teaches us the partnership of our common mission. To be on mission for Jesus is not a solo sport, it's a team sport. We're in this together. We're all gifted and called to a common will, the will of the Father. That's what Jesus came to accomplish, the will of his Father. We see Paul convey this as he instructs the, the Corinthian church. The context of 1 Corinthians 3 is division within the church over leadership. Who, which leader do I follow, Paul or Apollos? Paul says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God gave the growth. Sowing and reaping, right? So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Are you part of the team? Are you ready to harvest? Oftentimes we get so wrapped up on the negativity of the world around us and so focused on the darkness around us and and it strips us of our passion and drive for the mission of Christ. We have a mission to seek and to save the lost, to carry out the will of the Father. And his will is, as he said earlier, all who, look, all who would look to the work of Christ would be saved. Are we bringing others to the work of Jesus through our story, through our testimony? It's an urgent task, family. The fields are ripe for harvest. I know in my experience, again, with, with my raspberry bush, if I leave the raspberries on too long, they get heavy and filled with juice. And what do they do? When they're over-ripened, they, they weaken and they fall off the plant and then they wither. And it's so sad when you see that raspberry withering on the ground. Or the lovely birds come through and what do they do? They snatch away the fruit. We have an urgent task before us. We don't want anybody else to be snatched away. For people to overripen and fall, and then the word of Christ falls on deaf ears. Jesus gets to the urgency of the harvest in Matthew 9, 35 to 38. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. It says, When he saw the crowds, I love this description, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, he says this, hear this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I pray earnestly that the Lord would rise up a generation of laborers for the harvest that he has before us. Fields are white and ripe and ready. So what do we do with this message? The surrounding world tells us to tuck it away. Your faith is your faith. I don't want to hear about it. Your belief is yours. Keep it to yourself. But the will of the Father is that we would do these things, that we would go and tell, and that we would encourage others to come and see, to come and see and experience the risen Christ, to find life in him. And so we have three responses, three responses to this passage. Response number one, maybe you're in the room this morning and you're like the woman at the well. 
Your life is defined by sin and shame. You feel unworthy and unloved. Your personal sin, or perhaps even some of you are defined by a sin that has occurred to you. Someone has done something to you. Those things are are your identity. They're all you are. Jesus and this woman teach us that that's simply not true. Through the precious blood of Christ, you are reconciled to God. You are no longer defined by your sin or the sins against you. You're defined by the righteousness of Christ. Your identity is Christian, follower of Jesus. Your identity is in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Your shame wiped away. Your guilt dealt with. The sins against you at the hands of others are overcome by the power of Jesus and his empowering Holy Spirit that fills us. His word says he can give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Come away from your sin, come out from your grave, believe and follow after Jesus. Place your sin and shame at the foot of the cross. He's nailed it to the cross. He's taken care of it. Leave it there. Response number two. Maybe you're like the Samaritan crowd watching and waiting. Today is the day. You've heard the testimony of the woman of this story. The forgiveness of sins through Jesus and the purpose and the mission of God. Now is the time. Now is the time to seek after Jesus for yourself. Make faith your own. You cannot, here's here's the truth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God on the faith or the witness of another person. It's a decision you make for yourself to follow after Christ, to give your heart to him, to give your whole life to him, to die to yourself and follow after Jesus. You can't enter the kingdom of God on the coattails of your parents' faith or your spouse's faith, or your friend's faith. Know and experience Jesus today for yourself. Give your life to Christ. The third response. Lastly, Christian, I urge you to think for yourself, what's your story? What's your testimony? What's your seal and signature that testifies, as the word says here, that God is true, that Jesus has transformed my life? What's my story? I challenge you now. Let me give you a homework assignment, okay? Sharon Foster, I love you. I challenge you to think through your own personal story with Jesus and use this as as God intended to be on mission with him, to be a disciple that makes other disciples. And so it brings us to that this question, who is God calling you to share your story with, to witness, to testify, to set your seal and signature that God is true, that Jesus has transformed my life, and I want you to know about this saving truth, the power of Jesus. Jesus does this. He shows us what true satisfaction is. His sustenance, food, and fuel is to do the will of the Father in much the same way we walk in His path, empowered by His Spirit, 
declared righteous by his work, covered in his righteousness, covered uh, with garments that are as white as snow. No guilt, no shame. We walk in the righteousness of Christ. Let us now walk the path of his will and mission for our own lives. Amen.